Lord, it's such a privilege to sit here at this point in history. You took thousands of years to bring your Redeemer in flesh and blood to the stage and to purchase salvation. And I think of how few people in that time knew about it. And I think of here we are with your word in hand and with redemption having been purchased and with a culture that we have had for over a hundred years that has reinforced a knowledge of you. Um, it's such a privilege and it's also such a responsibility that we have. Lord, I pray that you'd help us this morning to have a, a, an appreciation for the, the groundwork that you laid for the coming of your son. I pray, Lord God, that you would allow this season to be even fuller and have, allow us to be better equipped to take the message of this season to our friends and family and neighbors. Lord, I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the first classes that I took as a um, college freshman, young 19-year-old at Moody was Old Testament survey. It was a large auditorium, um, and uh, all of the freshmen uh, were there for the class, and it was a requirement to read through the entire Old Testament during that semester. And I remember it being like, uh, you know, coming down to the question of, okay, your eyes have to run across the words. You know, even if you're listening to it on CD, you know, you have to have it open in front of you. And, you know, all these things, it's like, you know, you're just like mitigating all these assignments. How am I going to get this done? And, and um, but it was such a wonderful blessing. That class itself was such a blessing and it was it's such an encouragement to me. It opened up my eyes to the themes of the Old Testament, to the continuity, to the expansion. I learned about God as being a covenant-keeping God. I learned that, that the terms even of Old Testament and New Testament mean Old Covenant and New Covenant But aside from the old covenant that has been replaced with the new, I learned how God has been working with us in a covenant of grace. And not to confuse that with the old covenant of the law and the new covenant of the gospel. But but overarching all of that, and and I'll explain that what I mean this morning, that he's been working with us in his covenant of grace in which the gospel of Christ has always been what it has been about. I often thought of the Old Testament prior to this class as a time of huge displays of power and judgment. And honestly, that kept me from reading it much. 
It was, it was news to me that God had been working toward the coming of his son ever since we had turned away from him. It was news to me that God's grace had been at work through the, the Old Testament rather than it just being the time of the law and, and his grace came with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Unfortunately, I also have a memory of, of a really annoying guy sitting behind me. It was on one of the first day of classes. And I heard him before I noticed him with my eyes because, um, and what I found out later was that this was a, a guy that had, was a relatively new Christian, relatively new in his relationship with the Lord, and he had been discipled very intensely, especially in Bible memory. And so he sat back there, and he was a little bit cocky. He was just kind of like, uh-huh, yep, know about that, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know. And like literally almost every verse that the professor would start to quote, he would finish it, you know, back in the back. And he would like repeat the terms, you know, sanctification, uh-huh, sanctification, yeah, uh-huh. You know, it was just like, ah. Oh. <laughs> I didn't really get to know him but this, at that time, but this first impression really stuck with me. Little did I know that this guy would marry a girl who is the sister of the girl I would marry. (laughs) So this guy who was annoying me on one of the first days of this Old Testament survey class ended up what we call him and what we call each other my brother-in-law-in-law. And Gary, uh, who's a pastor, up in DeKalb, Illinois, he doesn't annoy me as much anymore for, I, at all. Uh, we're good friends. We enjoy each other. This morning, we're looking at Christmas as redemption coming into focus. And we're, and we're doing that, and, and I hope that just, just with snippets of these principles that we're able to step back, far back in redemptive history and start to walk up to that first Christmas night. I learned in Old Testament survey class that God has been at work throughout biblical history in much the same way as he was in my relationship with Gary doing things that maybe we didn't understand and we didn't grasp, but with the expectation of relationship and redemption and reconciliation. Just as I had no idea how Gary's and my lives would be intertwined, much of what we read about without the concept of the gospel much of what we read about leading up to Christ, we have no idea how it's all going to be intertwined and come to fruition in that baby that would be born. We might read what we think are the Old Testament's hapless statements or strange agreements amidst foreign happenings. But in reality, they're the promises that seem fuzzy, out of focus. 
But what we celebrate at Christmas brought them into full focus. Christ's coming is the focal point of the last 2,000 years. And it was also the focal point of the 5,000 plus years prior to his coming. As I mentioned, I learned in Old Testament survey class that God has always worked with us through covenants. And I'm going to define for you a a divine covenant. I'm sure there's other, you know, possibly better, slightly different definitions, but this is the gist of it. A divine covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationships. Elements of a covenant between God and man would involve which parties, who, who is involved here, whether it be um, just maybe the Hebrew people and God or, or all of mankind and God himself or those that he will redeem and God himself. Uh, thinking of like the Noahic covenant, which affects all of mankind, that God will never flood the earth again. That would be, the parties would be all of mankind. So the parties involved are involved in, in God's covenant and as well in each covenant he might make the conditions of that covenant would be an element of the covenant as well as the promises which come with keeping covenant with God. So just kind of looking at a broad brushstroke over biblical history. Let me help you to understand that Adam and Eve, and, and some might explain this differently. Okay, but one way to explain it is that they lived in a covenant of works with God. And the parties involved would be all of his created mankind, for, the, for we all have come from Adam and Eve, and his creator. And the promise was immortal life with God. Life extending from that point forever, walking with God as their creator. The condition was obedience to the one command to not eat from the single tree of the garden. We know from Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve fell to temptation. And so the blessing of the covenant of works was revoked and everything began to die. Death came along with the whole curse of man, woman, and creation since it lived in renegade against its creator at that point. Thankfully, soon after, God initiated his covenant of grace. The parties involved would be God and those who he will redeem. The condition would be faith in the coming redeemer or the redeemer that has come. And the expected blessings is eternal life with God being his people and God being their God. 
And, and as we kind of walk forward, we'll see that again and again throughout the Old Testament. God also involved in this covenant a mediator because now there was a gap of sin between mankind and his creator. And so this covenant involved a mediator whose righteousness would make up for that gap, whose righteousness would be provided for the redeemed to be able to have that relationship. The coming of that mediator as our redeemer is what we celebrate at Christmas time. And it's what they looked forward to. So there are many Old Testament promises that help the world's understanding of the Redeemer come into better focus. And today we're looking at just some of those. God's promises to Adam and Eve and his promise to Abraham and his descendants. And next week we'll look at God's promise to David as well. These function, these promises function like, like a ferropeter. So everybody knows what I mean by that. Good. <laughs> a ferropeter, which I had no idea. I had to like, what is that thing that the eye doctor uses? That's what I typed in. Um, a ferropeter is that, that kind of thing that the eye doctor will bring over, the optometrist, over your eyes. And you'll be looking at an image and they'll kind of flip lenses you know, or now they kind of push a button and the thing just kind of works automatically. Um, it, you know, they'll flip lenses and as they flip it, they're bringing the image into better focus. And for us, as well as for those who were waiting for the Redeemer, the promises of God were bringing that Redeemer into incrementally better focus of what God had planned who this Redeemer would be. Just as what a person is looking at as the optometrist flips the lenses, getting closer to perfect focus, the coming Redeemer that we celebrate on Christmas came into better focus with each of God's promises. So let's look first at the hope of a Redeemer. The hope of a redeemer that came with God's promise to Adam and Eve. Now, Genesis 3.15 comes amidst some very sad statements that God is making regarding the consequence of mankind's turning away from his creator and doing the one thing that they were told not to do of eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and this brought... this bringing of sin into our world brought a curse on man, it brought a curse on woman, brought a curse on creation, and it also brought a curse on Satan who tempted the woman in the form of a serpent. And within that statement to the serpent, ironically, and, and this is how God's always frustrating our enemy, He makes this statement, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I prefer the, the translation that some scriptures use of crush 
rather than bruise. And that's what's kind of being communicated here. To be, to be bruised on the heel or crushed on the heel is not as bad as having your head crushed or bruised. And that's what it's intended to communicate. The enemy, Satan, bruising the heel of that coming offspring embodies our Savior's death and resurrection, his temporary death for our salvation. But his bruising of the head, his crushing the head of Satan is the death blow for Satan. It's speaking of his ultimate ruin being hurled into the lake of fire. I want to read one quote um, that says, this is a reference to Christ's victory over Satan at the cross when Christ would render Satan powerless enabling man to be forever restored to fellowship with God. Now this brought the Redeemer into very low focus. A Redeemer is coming. That Redeemer is going to come as a man. He's going to be born of a woman. And it was just a hope. It was just a fuzzy, fuzzy picture of this person that would make things right again, that would, that would reverse the work of the enemy. And it's very likely that when Eve gave birth to Cain, who ended up being the furthest thing from a redeemer, that in his name Cain, her hope was this is the man. Okay, Cain... Is, the term is close to the Hebrew term forgotten or acquired. And this is why Hebrews 4.1 states that when Eve gave birth to Cain, it says she bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So a literal application of, for that day of a person living in this time after Adam and Eve, having heard of this Redeemer. Also, we have the fact that God instituted that the idea that he sacrificed an animal in order to clothe them. So there was, it was illustrating this as well. But, but the literal application, because we ask you know, the question sometimes of people in order to understand whether they know Christ as their Savior, we might ask them, if you were to stand before the Lord and, and he were to ask you, why do you believe you have an eternal relationship with me? If you were to ask a person living in that time and they were to be saved, their response would have been something like, I have placed my hope in the fact that the coming Redeemer will make everything right again. They were looking forward without knowing it. With fuzzy focus, they were looking forward to that Christmas night. Wayne Grudem says this. He's, when he talks about New Testament faith and relationship to Old Testament faith, for Old Testament saints, he says the New Testament requirement of faith in the redemptive work of the Messiah was also the condition of obtaining the blessing of the covenant in the Old Testament. 
So that same faith in the coming Messiah was also the faith that they were practicing to be a part of the covenant of grace. But we have the opportunity for being where we live in redemptive history of having redemption in full focus. And I can remember what that Old Testament uh, survey professor would say. He says, the New Testament gives us New Testament commentaries on these things, help us better understand what was going on at that time. Standing on this side of the cross, we can understand more the blessings that came with God's covenant of grace as they're in better focus for us. And those, as I mentioned, the blessings that were anticipated were being a part of God's people with him as their God. We saw as Jeremiah wrote in the time when he, he wrote of the time when God would, would, uh, would finally be with Israel in a physical way and, and within a new reign with them. In Jeremiah 32, 38 through 39, he writes, And they shall be my people, God says, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. So we're able to look and see from from the rest of Scripture that the intention of God's covenant of grace would be that he, that there would be a people that are his. And they're his alone because he is their God. Ezekiel foretold of a time after Israel's captivity where he says in Ezekiel 37, 26 through 27, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We still living in this covenant of grace on this side of the cross can read in 2 Corinthians 6, 16 where Paul writes about Christ's body as God's temple, the church as God's temple, where he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The promise of the covenant of grace. And First Peter Peter writes about how we as Gentiles have become the people of God through Christ in this covenant of grace. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And as we've looked at recently, God's plan is to bring his redeemed back to a place where he is physically in our presence and we are physically able to walk together again. And John, in his vision of Revelation, Revelation 21.3, describes 
those days when he says, and I heard a voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The provision, the plan for the culmination of this in that moment that John foresees was begun soon after the fall. And the Redeemer that would make it possible is what we celebrate on Christmas morning. We also see that Redeemer in full focus. We have a better understanding of why it was that he had to be an offspring of woman. As Hebrews 2.14 allows us to understand where it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. We're able to understand that Jesus, the Redeemer, needed to be born as a man in order to take our punishment of death for us. It would ultimately be a bruising by the serpent on the cross that Jesus would be, through that bruising, he would be able to crush the serpent's head. And death would lose its victory and sin would lose its sting. What would be most biblical is if each one of us had, I, I tease when I say most biblical, but if each one of us had, you know, an ornament on our Christmas tree of a crushed serpent. You know, that could be a money-making venture for some of you teenagers. Just this summer, go around collecting roadkill, sell it at the bridge festival <laughs> as a Christmas ornament. In fact, I decided uh, we needed one of these ornaments. So um, last night while we were playing cards and things, I was working with some clay and, uh, and uh, made up a crushed, crushed snake Christmas ornament. Um, Kelly told me, crushed or not, that Satan's not going on my Christmas tree. <laughs> so I, I've got some convincing to do of Kelly to let me uh, hang it on there. So a crushed snake doesn't make for a good Christmas ornament. But Christmas celebrates the coming head crusher. The head crusher of our enemy, the serpent of Satan and of sin and of death, the coming redeemer that Adam and Eve and those following them only had the hope, the fuzzy hope of this coming one. And this is why the verse of joy to the world goes as such. It says, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The baby on that special night in Bethlehem was the one who was promised to reverse the curse. So the next promise that we're going to look at came to an unsuspecting man of Ur who was minding his own business. 
and God spoke to him. And we see in God's promise to Abraham, among many other things, the scope of redemption. So we read in Genesis 12, one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Within God's promise to Abraham are three elements. One of those is that the descendants of Abraham, well, first we should say that he was gonna have many descendants. And you see that in verse two, that he will make of him a great nation and that he will bless them and make his name great. We also see in that verse one that they will have land. And he outlines that land in further uh, explanations of this promise to Abraham. And he also see in verse three that he will be a blessing and that redemption will be available to all of the families of the earth through Abraham and specifically through his descendants and even more specifically through the fact that the Redeemer is going to come through his descendants. This is, this is better than the, the low focus of the promise to Adam and Eve, but it's just still just little focus that the ministry of the Redeemer would be open to all the families of the earth through Abraham and his descendants. We know that Abraham's descendants on Isaac's side became the Hebrew nation. On Ishmael's side became the Arab nations. So as I mentioned, Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And we read in Genesis 17, 19 that, that though Abraham had attempted to fulfill God's promise through making Ishmael happen with his maidservant Hagar, God tells Abraham in Genesis 17, 19, says, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him and as an with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now, this issue right here is what the Middle East has been blown up over ever since. But that's a side note. So Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. They're twins, but Esau is born first. Culturally, Esau would have been the son that receives the birthright, that receives whatever promise had been made by God to his, to his father. But no, Jacob receives the promise of being the one that will bring redemption to mankind. So we can read in other places as well, but we read in Genesis 28, 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. This is God speaking to Jacob. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you all your and your offspring, um, let me not mess this up, in you 
and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The promise of redemption continues. Redemption that's available to all mankind through the coming Redeemer. You may know Jacob's name gets changed by God to Israel, meaning one who walks with God. And Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph's tribe being divided up into Ephraim and Manasseh. But that's neither here nor there either. But we can read in Genesis 49.10 that the Redeemer will come from the tribe of Judah. One of the first foretelling of this we read that the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet and to him shall, the, shall be the obedience of the peoples. We know that the manger was filled not just with a little baby, was filled with what Revelation 5.5 calls the lion of the tribe of Judah. We also have other aspects of God's promise to Abraham brought into full focus for us as we look back on that, as we've mentioned, from our point in biblical history, from all that's been revealed in Scripture for us at this time as privileged people. And, and this has come up probably a lot in small groups as we've looked at the book of Galatians. And it's kind of the question of, okay, why was it such a big deal that uh, Abraham was righteous before God by faith, before the law came into effect? And so it's okay that the law being the old covenant, not to be confused with the covenant of grace, the law being the old covenant has been set aside by the new covenant. So we're not really asking a lot of those questions necessarily. But what is coming up in our small group and things, and I hope it's coming up in yours, is this idea of God's grace was there for Abraham in the Old Testament through Christ. We read in passages like Romans 4, 3 through 5. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, our way of doing things is if you work, you earn this much. This is what you're due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So in other words, Abraham didn't fit into this category of, okay, he did this work and okay, his due is righteousness. He fit into this category of grace of the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Since the fall of man, God has never redeemed people through their works as something they are due. He's never owed salvation to anyone. And that's what legalism calls for. It's always been by his grace. In the same way, Abraham has never was not saved due to his works, but because of his faith in the coming Redeemer. In fact, it was faith in the Redeemer to come through Isaac's line that allowed Abraham to obey God, 
when God called for Abraham, when, when he was tested saying, kill Isaac for me. It was actually Abraham's faith in the fact that the Redeemer would come through Isaac that caused Abraham to be able to obey in that way. We learn that from Hebrews 11, where it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. In other words, God, God has told me that Isaac is, going, is the promised one. This is the one that the Redeemer is going to come through. through. Through this will my offspring come. Through this will all of God's promises happen. If I follow through with this, God must be able to raise him from the dead. Faith that God would raise Isaac from the dead, keeping his promise. And we know that we are aligned with Abraham's faith in putting our faith in Christ, this Christ of Christmas, because we read in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In other words, you have the same type of faith as Abraham did. We are exercising that same type of faith and we bring redemption into full focus through the New Testament and that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not law versus grace. Grace, as I mentioned, was present in the Old Testament as we're told in Galatians 3.8 that the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, what does it say? Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And what part particularly? Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Why does Paul tell us that God preached the gospel to Abraham? It's because he was sharing revelation. God was sharing revelation with Abraham about the coming redeemer and that the scope of that seed that will crush the head of the serpent will be available to all the nations of the earth through him and his descendants. And it was Abraham's faith in that coming Redeemer that caused him to be saved just as in the same way now that the Redeemer has come in the form of a baby and died on a cross, he is the content of the gospel for us as well. And if you're asked the question of why we think we have an eternal relationship with God, we should answer the same as Abraham would have. I believe that I've been told by God. I'm sorry, I believe what I have been told by God about the Redeemer that he has sent. Or except for Abraham, it's that he is, will send one day. Although we now have the opportunity to know through what's been more fully revealed in Scripture, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he died on a cross for my sins and for your sins, even though he had no sins. And then he rose from the grave due to his power over death. And that, and that I'm able to have my sins forgiven because I've accepted the fact that he paid for them. And that I can be redeemed and reconciled to God. 
adopted as his child, have an eternal walk with God through Christ. Speaking of joy to the world, the promise to Abraham was also why the Jewish people were truly bringing joy to the world. He brings the opportunity of redemption to every family on the earth. Families need redemption these days. Families need reconciliation. They need a message that despite what is going on at that moment, it's not the ultimate thing that's going on. The ultimate thing that's going on is that we need to be reconciled to our creator. And that's the greatest way that we have the hope of being reconciled to each other. They're especially open to hear about it this Christmas season. It can be as simple as, do you know what that baby's about? Do you know what the Christ of Christmas is? And, and really listen. You know, what do they think? We can find ways to bring them the hope of Christmas. Well, just real shortly, we have the record of the Redeemer, of God's provision in Christ. The Gospels allow us to, as I've been mentioned, to bring the Redeemer in full focus, what was fuzzy and out of focus for those of the Old Testament. And Matthew and Luke contain genealogies of Jesus in their opening chapters. And um, we'll look more at these differences between Matthew and Luke next week, specifically, um, you know, why they mention the people that they do and things. But this week, I just want to point out something important that people, uh, the, the important people mentioned by Luke. Notice there in Luke 3, 33 through 34, that, and Luke starts with Joseph, Jesus' father, earthly father, and I love how it says, who is supposed his father, <laughs> and moves backward. And see there in verse 33, uh, Perez was the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Probably goes without saying, but Luke found it important to show that Jesus was the descendant of all who he needed to be in order to be the Redeemer. Well, something interesting as I, as I look through this, and we'll talk more about this next week, but as I, as I was just started to um, research information about the genealogies and things, we'll look at how Matthew and Luke give two different fathers' names for Joseph. And the theories on why that is. And you might ask yourself, well, well, why can't we know why that is? One theory says, well, he's the, uh, that Luke follows the, the line of Mary. Another theory is that, that Joseph had a father and a stepfather. And, and there's a reason why, we'll explain the reason why, one follows through Nathan, the son of David, the other follows through Solomon, the son of David. But 
you might say, well, what, why are these open to debate? Why it is that this gene, you know, what, that one would be Mary's line and the other one would be Joseph's line? Why can't you just check other genealogies and check them by? Well, all the other genealogies were destroyed. When the Romans destroyed the temple in AD 70, the Jewish genealogies were destroyed. This is all we have. So we might look at Matthew and Luke and be like, ah, you know, okay, it's a list of names. I'm sure there's a list of names everywhere. No, this is all we have. For the last 2,000 years, it shows that Jesus was traced back to Judah and to Jacob and Isaac from Abraham. But this meant that he was eligible to be the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It meant that he was the coming redeemer who Abraham and the saints before and after them had placed their hope in. And while Matthew goes back only to Abraham, Luke goes even further. And it goes without saying, Jesus, being fully man, was also born of Adam, as we all are. But Luke takes this all the way back to Adam, calling Adam the son of God because who else would be Adam's father? But Luke is the gospel that focuses on Jesus' humanity. This is part of the reason. But I hope you can see that there's more to it than this. Luke shows the people who were waiting for their redeemer as the seed of the woman the offspring of the woman that would one day crush the head of the serpent. And the descendant of Adam that was the promised redeemer had shown up in a manger. What was a distant glimmer of an image was now finally in full focus that the world could share and the world could celebrate. And that's the Jesus of Christmas. The whole world of God's people who had known and believed that this head-crushing redeemer, this serpent-crushing savior would finally come. That's who was showing up. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. And we feel privileged. I feel privileged that here we live at this point in history And there were so many that waited and hoped with that image of the Redeemer so out of focus, only just glimpses of what it would mean. And here we have, it has come, it has happened, redemption has purchased. And we look back 2,000 years later with your full scriptures to be able to understand it. Lord, I pray that you would give as I've said, Christmas such a significance for us this year, but I pray also that you would give us opportunities to give it the significance that it's never had for someone else. The coming of your son is worth remembering. It's worth celebrating. It's worth stopping everything because everything would have gone to pot without it, without your promise. Thank you for conquering death. Thank you for sending your son. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.